Uh, I need to establish right up front that I know it's Easter Sunday. Uh, and the reason I need to establish that, I'm going to tell you a Christmas joke. And I don't want you to think, I don't want you to think I'm confused about the holiday. A small boy was pleading with his parents uh, for the gifts that he wanted for Christmas. And he didn't think he was getting anywhere with his parents. So he wrote a letter to God about the Christmas pa- uh, presents that he wanted. Uh, he said, I've been good for six months, he wrote. And after he thought about it for a moment, though, he crossed out six months and he wrote three. And he said, I've been good for three months. But he thought about that for a moment and he changed it to two weeks. And then he thought about that and he erased it again. And finally, the boy got up from the table and went over to the little nativity scene that had the figures of Mary and Joseph. He picked up the figure of Mary, went back to his writing, and he started the letter again. Dear God, if you ever want to see your mother again... Now, why would I start Easter with a joke from Christmas? Well, it's because I think it illuminates, uh, it illustrates in a very funny way, one of the many misunderstandings that people have about the nature of Christianity. And in this particular case, the idea that the way you earn favor with God is by being good, uh, just like you do with Santa Claus. And, you know, I come across a lot of people in my vocation, as some of you might imagine, uh, who take issue with Christianity. And the problem that I often find is that... uh, what they're taking issue with really isn't Christianity at all, but it's kind of a twisted, a pseudo version of Christianity that they learned either from the mean-spirited, legalistic, judgmental church that they grew up in, or maybe they've learned it from what they've seen on social or conventional media about Christianity, which generally isn't very positive, and let's be honest, sometimes that's deserved, right? Well, I recognize that on Easter Sunday morning in America, I'm, I'm speaking to a lot of people who really don't want to be here, Uh, But you're here because of family. Some of you were threatened by your mother. Um, Or maybe you were threatened by, uh, maybe maybe your father was threatened by your mother, and so he threatened you. Uh, Perhaps the reason that you don't want to be here is because you take issue with Christianity, or at least your perception of Christianity. Whatever the reason that you're here today, I want to try in the next few moments, if you will allow me, I want to try to change a few misunderstandings that you might have about Christianity. And so to do that, I'm going to take you to a passage in the book of Mark in the New Testament. It's Mark chapter 16. And I'm going to put the verses up on the screen uh, that I'm going to read. I'm going to put those up there uh, for you this morning because I want you to be able to follow along. And I want to just give you a little context right off the top of the uh, right off the top here for this passage. What we're going to read happens just after Jesus has been crucified on a Roman cross. You don't need to turn there, but let me read how Mark describes this. It says, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Now, just a few verses later, Mark tells us that the Romans give Jesus' body to a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who placed Jesus' body in a tomb just before the Sabbath began. And so all of that took place on a Friday. And because it was against Jewish religious law to be near a dead body on the Sabbath, nothing more could be done to Jesus' body uh, at the moment until Sabbath was over. And so as we open chapter 16, it is Sunday morning. It's very early, just around dawn. Sabbath is now over. So three women come to do the final work of anointing Jesus' body. 
for burial, according to Jewish custom. I want to start at verse 1 of Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Uh, So as I said, I want to try to change some of the misperceptions that some, maybe many of you have about Christianity. And so first I want to do this. I want to invite you this morning to intellectually scrutinize the resurrection. Uh, To intellectually scrutinize the resurrection. And the reason I want to start there is that a lot of people I meet think that the resurrection is something that we're just expected to take on faith. Uh, Other people that I meet argue that the only way to believe in Christianity is to just shut off your mind, to not think, and just believe. But I want you to look again at what this uh, says. It describes this this angel as a young man, but it's an angel. He says, I want you to to look again at what this angel says to the women in verse 6, and I want you to please note that he does not ask these women to just take the resurrection on faith. He says, you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. And then see, note that word, see the place where they laid him. Now, I highlighted the word see because it's the translation of a Greek word. And the Greek word is horao. And horao means more than just to physically look at something. There were other Greek words that could have been used if you just wanted to describe just to look at something physically. But horao means something different. It means to comprehend, like to understand, uh, to discern the meaning of something that you have scrutinized. So it's not physical sight at all, really. You know, like if someone someone explains something complicated to you, uh, once you get it, what do you say? Oh, I see, right? You're not talking about physical sight. You're talking about the fact, you're saying, I comprehend, I get it. I understand what you're, what you're saying. Well, that's what, that's what this word horao is. It means to comprehend. I get it. I understand. I see what's happened. Okay? And so this angel is inviting these women, when he, when he uses this word, he's inviting these women to intellectually scrutinize this empty tomb. Now, why, why would he do that? Why would he, why would he want them to intellectually scrutinize this empty tomb? Well, it's because dead bodies don't come back to life. No matter how much of The Walking Dead you might have watched, they don't come back to life. He knows that this is intellectually disruptive uh, to their model of reality, to anyone's model of reality, for that matter. I mean, see, these ladies didn't come to this tomb expecting Jesus' body to be raised from the dead, which is why the angel says to them, don't be alarmed. They expected Jesus' body to be there because dead bodies... Well, they tend to stay put. It's intellectually disruptive to these women and to their model of reality. And it is just as intellectually disruptive for us as it was for them. And even though 
We couldn't be there with these women to physically scrutinize the evidence. Mark does some things here that allow us, that, that make it possible for us to scrutinize intellectually the resurrection so that you can also see and verify in the same manner that these three women did. And here, here's what I mean. Here's some of the things that Mark does. First, Mark doesn't hide the fact that women were the first to discover Jesus' empty tomb. He doesn't hide that. Now, why does that matter? Well, you have to understand the culture of the first century. Nothing, like nothing would have been less convincing. In fact, more problematic to the credibility of the resurrection than having women be the first to discover it in that culture. Because unlike today, women weren't considered by anyone to be credible witnesses in the first century. But Mark puts these women up front, center stage, because he wants us to see, understand, comprehend the significance of this. If he's just making this whole thing up, he would have never made women the first witnesses. Like that would have been the worst thing to do. Something else Mark does is he repeats the names of these women uh, three different times in chapter 15 and then chapter 16. Uh, In chapter 15, Mark's talking about the crucifixion, and he says some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. He mentions these women again in verse 47 of chapter 15. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. And then again, you saw it a little while ago in the first chapter of, uh, excuse me, in the first verse of chapter 16, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Now, why does he repeat their names three different times. Why, why do you suppose he would do that? Well, the reason is that he's inviting people to go ask these three women about it. You see, some of you are under the impression that a book like this was written hundreds of years after Jesus lived. Not so. This book was written to the same generation that witnessed Jesus' life. People would have known these women. Mark is saying to them, Don't just take my word for it. Don't just take this on faith. Go talk to these women. Go ask them. Because he knows how hard this would be to believe. And again, if he's lying about this, if he's just making this up, these women would have contradicted him. And Jesus' movement would have never gotten off the ground. He just repeats their names. He just wants to make sure everybody knows who he's talking about here. Third, Mark includes detail that only eyewitnesses can give. For instance, in verse 5, Mark says this. He says, as they entered the tomb, you saw this. He says, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, that's the angel, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the, what does he say? He says, sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. And when I was studying this passage, I thought, well, so what? Right side, left side, front back, who cares? What difference does that make? But a few years ago, I called a, I called a retired FBI agent who specialized during his career in interviewing and interrogating people. And uh, he told me that a person who is not telling the truth is likely trying to hide something because uh, details like this, like this one can't be uh, contradicted. So they don't give details, right? They, they, don't give it, they don't give details. But eyewitnesses who are telling the truth give details that can be verified by others. Well, who could verify that he was on the right side? Well, again, it was these three women. And so in providing this detail, Mark is saying to his, his original readers, Again, go ask these women. 
Don't just take this on faith. Intellectually scrutinize it. Be skeptical. And then one other thing I want to point out, Mark doesn't whitewash. He doesn't whitewash the women's reaction to this disruptive event. He says in verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now think about that for just a moment. They had just been told explicitly by the angel to tell the disciples, but they don't do that. Uh Uh-uh. Like they're afraid. They don't say to the angel, whatever thou asketh, we shall doeth, kind sir. Uh, they're like, let's get out of here. Where can we get a drink? Because they're afraid, right? They, they're, <laughs> they're upset. And frankly, this doesn't look good if you're trying to make up a story. Again, Mark is saying, I know, I know all of this is hard to believe. I, I, I know it's intellectually disruptive. I, I'm, I'm not trying to whitewash anything. Be skeptical about it scrutinize it to his original readers. He was saying, go ask these three women. Don't just take it on faith. And I would say to you this morning that if you're skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus, good, you should be, right? I mean, because this doesn't happen. Uh, You should not just take this on faith. Be skeptical. I mean, no other religion, no other religious leader has the audacity to claim such a thing that he was raised from the dead. But I would also say to you, if the resurrection happened, its implications are so profound that it is of first priority that you take the time to intellectually scrutinize the evidence for it. Do you understand? I don't know if you get this. Do you understand that the stone over Jesus' tomb wasn't rolled away for Jesus to get out? Like he didn't need that. The stone was rolled away to let these women and through them us, come in and take a good, hard look at the evidence. And I want to just, I guess I'd just like to challenge some of you to look and, and see, like see all the evidence and have the intellectual integrity to allow that evidence to change your model of reality. So that's the first thing that I want to do this morning. I just want to just want to invite you to come and intellectually scrutinize the resurrection, the evidence for the resurrection. That's, that's number one. The second thing that I want to do uh, this morning is I want to ask you to consider uh, the operative principle of Christianity. I uh, just want to challenge you to consider the operative principle of Christianity. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I want you to notice something that happens here. Notice what the angel tells these women in verse 7. The angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. I emphasized that for you. Go tell his disciples and Peter uh, that he's going uh, ahead of you. He, Jesus, is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, Jesus, just as he, Jesus, told you in advance that he would, right? Well, notice that he specifically mentions the name Peter, who was one of the disciples. So there really wasn't a, a need to mention Peter by name because, as I said, He was one of the disciples. So, for instance, if I said to you, go tell the Lakers that they didn't make the playoffs, I wouldn't need to say, go tell the Lakers and LeBron that they didn't make the playoffs. Why? Because LeBron is a Laker. He might wish he weren't a Laker this year, but he is a Laker. Peter is one of the disciples. No need to mention him by name unless, unless you wanted to make a point. And that's what's happening here. 
Because you see, and here's what's fascinating. Before Jesus was crucified, he had forewarned all of, all of the disciples, including Peter, that he was going to be crucified. And, then, and he, said, he said to these guys, he said, he said, all of you guys that are following, you, you're all going to betray me. Like you're all going to abandon me. You're all going to be, betray me. But Peter was like, no way, no way, not me. All of these other yahoos might abandon you, but not me. I am in all the way to death. You know, big, big words. Well, once Jesus is arrested, Peter sticks with Jesus till a little girl recognizes him as one of Jesus' disciples, which would have been very dangerous to Peter. And guess what Peter does? Guess what he does? He denies that he even knows Jesus, and he runs for the hills. Now, here's what I'm trying to get to when I said a moment ago, consider the operative principle of Christianity. I want you to hear me on this. If Christianity operated off of the same operative principle that the rest of the world does, on his way out of the tomb, Jesus would have told the angel, tell that no good, no faith coward Peter to stay away from me. I'm better off without him. I don't need him. Like, it, like, it, like, like if Christianity operated off the same principle, that's what Jesus would have said. But that's not what he told the angel. In fact, he makes a special note to mention Peter by name, to tell him, I want you. Come see me. I want you to be part of my movement. He's forgiving Peter before Peter even has the chance to ask for forgiveness. Now think about that for just a moment. I'd like to ask you, how is that different from what you have understood about Christianity? Like, is that what you would have expected Jesus to do? And you see, I'm, I'm going to argue that, that many of you, had you been in in Peter's situation, you would have probably told the other disciples, listen, you guys, go ahead. Uh, I feel certain he's not talking. I feel certain he doesn't want to see me. Like, I failed him. You guys go. He's not talking about me. And, and you see, you would say that, I think, because the operative principle of the world we live in is that, that you find happiness and meaning in life through strength and through deservedness. Like, that's how you make it in the world. How do you get a promotion at work? By demonstrating that you can do the job, by measuring up, by working hard, doing a good job. What do you put on your resume if you want a job? Do you put all your failures or do you put all your successes? Your successes, of course. That's the operative principle of the world. And every religion, by the way, works off the same operative principle of success and deservedness. Why? Well, because man-made religions only know the operative principle of success and deservedness. And so I like to put it like this. Some people who are familiar with City Church, who've been here for a while, might recognize this. I like to say it like this, that religion says, uh, any religion, any world religion says, I believe in whatever the God of the religion is, plus I obey, uh, therefore an equal, I, that equals I am saved. So, so I believe in the God, and I obey the code of conduct of my religion, and I'm saved. That's what religion says. I am saved because... I have my act together. Uh, I measure up to the standards of my religion. I'm saved because I'm disciplined enough and I'm good enough and I'm strong enough to follow the rules. And so I deserve to be saved. I mean, think about it. That was how the little boy in my joke at the beginning thought about God until he recognized he wasn't good enough and then he resorted to kidnapping. But you see, Christianity is different. It works off a completely different operative principle than the rest of the world and than every other religion in the world because It isn't man-made. And I would say it like this, that the operative principle Christianity works off of is grace. Grace, not 
strength and deservedness, grace. Christianity says that you find life through grace. It's undeserved. It's not about strength and success. And so religion says, I believe plus I obey equals I am saved. I'm so good. I believe. I mean, I follow all the rules. I'm saved. Christianity says something very, very different. It's going to look similar to you, but it's very, very different. Christianity says, I believe. I am saved equals I am saved. I believe. Notice obey isn't part of that equation. I believe in what Christ did on the cross for me. Has nothing to do with how good I am or how bad I am. I believe that means I'm saved. Now, as a result of being saved, therefore I obey because I'm so blown away by what Jesus did for me. I'm so in love with him that I want to obey. But obedience isn't part of being saved. Obedience isn't part of of it at all. And I will tell you that if there's any one thing that I find that people misunderstand the most about Christianity, it's this. Like the little boy in the story, they think that the way to God is to be good and to be obedient. But here is Peter, the failure, the coward, the turncoat, the disappointment, being told that Jesus mentioned him by name, that he wants to see him. And I wonder if you can imagine how Peter must have felt in that moment, knowing how bad he'd failed, and yet knowing his Savior wants to see him. But I haven't even told you the real kicker yet. If you were to read on in the Bible, Peter becomes the leader of Jesus' movement, like the main man. The item on Peter's moral resume that most qualified him for the role as the leader of Jesus' movement was his failure. Not his success. Why Why his failure? Well, here's the deal. To Jesus, the guy who failed the worst is the guy who will experience the deepest repentance and the deepest appreciation of the grace of Jesus, which will make him the best leader for Jesus' movement, which is a movement of undeservedness, grace. If Christianity were like every other religion in the world, if it were about strength and deservedness, about obeying all of the rules to get on good side, Peter Uh, To get on God's good side, Peter wouldn't have had a shot. But Christianity isn't about strength and deservedness. It's about grace. And you see, people who have failed, people who have fallen off of the platforms that they've built for themselves of success and strength and deservedness, those people have the capacity to understand their weakness and the radicalness of grace in a way that other people don't. And therefore, they have the greatest amount of compassion for other people who are also moral failures. And by the way, we are all moral failures. And like, I don't mean to say that we've all failed equally. I just mean that we're all moral failures. We're not all as bad as we could be, but none of us are as good as we should be. Like even the best of us in the room. Haven't you just felt once, those of you haven't, that would maybe consider yourselves to be morally successful people, haven't you just felt once jealous of someone else? That's a failure. It's a failure to love. Haven't you just once told a white lie? That's a moral failure. It's a failure to speak truth. Haven't you just once thought to yourself that you wish your sister-in-law would shut her big fat pie hole? I mean, all of us are moral failures to one extent or another. 
But the good news of Christianity, as opposed to the world that we live in, and the man-made religions that come out of it, is that the operative principle of Christianity is not success or strength or deservedness or morality. The operative principle of Christianity is grace. And I would just ask you, is that different than the way that you've always understood it? Is that different than what you were taught when you were a child in Sunday school in some church somewhere? That the operative principle of Christianity is grace? Or were you taught that the operative principle of Christianity is obedience? What were you taught? Because it's grace, not obedience. That's the operative principle of Christianity. And I'd just ask you to consider that today, would you? How different is that from everything you ever thought you knew about Christianity? See, this is why Christians call the gospel of Jesus Christ good news, because we all understand that we're moral failures. We've got no platform to judge anyone else. And if we were judged on the basis of strength and and deservedness, we'd all be in trouble. Christianity is good news, which is, I suspect, very different than anything that you thought that you knew about Christianity. So intellectually scrutinize the resurrection, please. Consider also the operative principle of Christianity, that it's grace, not deservedness. Let me close with this. The end of the story, uh, to me, is really fascinating. Because I want you to remember that that this angel told these ladies to go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is alive. But I want you to notice how this passage ends says, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone uh, because they were afraid. And that's an odd way to end. It's an odd way to end your account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, don't you think? Especially, like if you're trying to start a movement, don't you think that's an odd way to end? And uh, it's fascinating, the three other Gospels don't include this in their accounts that these ladies just, like, they didn't go tell anybody at first. They end with the women telling the disciples and Peter about Jesus' resurrection, just as the angel had commanded them to do. But in Mark's gospel, they don't do that, at least not right away. And and here's the thing. It, It is such an unusual ending that if you have a Bible, you might notice that there are more verses after verse 8, and then there's a note that says something to the effect that the earliest and best manuscripts don't include those extra verses. Well, it appears that somewhere along the way, a scribe whose job was to copy the book for others to read it way back long ago was so bothered himself by this ending that he thought he needed to fix it, which makes perfect sense, right? Like, why would Mark end his gospel in such an an odd way? And I studied that, and I thought about it more, and it finally hit me. Mark wants us to see that these women had to process all that they'd seen and heard. If if even for a short time, they had to process all of it. Like, like Like they didn't just immediately go do something. They had to think about it. They had to process it. They had to get their heads around it like anybody would. And I have to tell you that, you know, my goals are are pretty modest here uh, this morning. I'm not expecting anyone here today to suddenly hit their knees or to like walk an aisle and say, you've changed my mind about Christianity. I now believe in Jesus. That's, those really aren't my goals. What I'm just asking you to do is 
like the three women in this story, process what you've seen this morning. Like what you've seen this morning. It's a lot to digest, a resurrection. A faith that doesn't work on the same operative principle as the rest of the world that you live in and every other religion in the world. That's a lot to digest. It's a lot to take in. And I'm just asking you to process all of this. And maybe as you're processing it, maybe you would just ask this. If it's true, how would it change my life? Because at some point, these women had to make a decision. Like, what do we do with this news? Do we act on it? Do we ignore it? Do we keep it to ourselves? Do we tell people about it? But I would just say to you, take the time to process it. Make your own decision. Just know this, please, as you walk away today, regardless of what you see on social media or on conventional media, regardless of what you think you know about Christianity, regardless of what somebody has told you about Christianity, just know this. The message of Christianity is that Jesus so loved people, all people, red state people, blue state people, straight people, gay people, binary people, non-binary people, educated people, uneducated people, pro-choice people, pro-life people, Muslims, Jewish people, Buddhists, Hindus, upstanding citizens and the people who haven't made and aren't making all of the right moral choices, great successes, massive failures, rich people and poor people. Jesus so loved all people that he died for us on the cross to pay the price for all of our moral failures and to show us the extent of his love. And then he proved the reality of what he had done by doing something that no other religious leader in world history has ever had the audacity to claim. He was raised again from the dead. Would you just know that today? Just know that. Intellectually scrutinize the resurrection. Consider the operative principle of Christianity as grace. Block out everything else you think you know about Christianity. And maybe today, this week, just just process that. And see what decision that you come to. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? I, for one, Lord Jesus, am so grateful that the operative principle of Christianity is grace. It is not success and deservedness because if it were about deservedness, if it were about being morally deserving, I, of all the people in this room, would have no chance to have a relationship with you, no chance for eternal life, no chance for meaning in this life because I am a moral failure. I thank you for your goodness to me. I thank you for your goodness to all people. I thank you for what you've done on the cross. And Christianity is good news because it's about grace and it's not about success and deservedness. And I pray for the people in this room today. Maybe they, maybe they came in here today. They had a, maybe a, a slightly or even largely different view of Christianity than what we've talked about today. Lord, I uh, just pray that you would bring some of these things to their minds this week. Maybe later today, maybe later this week that they would intellectually scrutinize the resurrection, that they would begin to see it, not physically, but to get their heads around it. And they would also be moved by the fact that unlike the rest of the world, the operative principle of Christianity is grace. Lord Jesus, we worship you for what you did on the cross for us. And we worship you too because the grave couldn't hold you. In the three days after your death on the cross, you, unlike any other religious leader, 
in any other place in the world, in all of human history, were raised again from the dead, proving that you are who you said you were, God, and that you were the only acceptable sacrifice for the moral failures of humanity. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray. Amen.